Well, as we approach the word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather and to study your word. But we ask that you would please work in us. Father, we recognize that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is a spiritual battle in which the forces of the enemy would love for us to to not see Jesus this morning. Would want us to be distracted, would want the portrait of Christ to be blurred. And I pray, Father, that you would please cut through the distractions in our hearts, even in this room, to enable us to see Jesus and to place our trust in him fully. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, the sermon title this morning, Two Canceled Funerals. Two Canceled Funerals. And I know that even the term funeral is a sensitive one for our congregation this morning. We have experienced the losses of some dear people as of late. Just yesterday was the memorial service for Ernie Arroyo, and Jill Malosh's memorial is still coming. Our body has sensed grief and has dealt with these losses, and if we start going back to the last year, those continue to add up. On top of the losses we've felt as a congregation, though, many of us have had individual losses, losses of family members in this last year who weren't maybe necessarily part of this congregation, but the pain of which still stings upon our hearts. And we know that around the world, people in this last year have had to deal with death in a way they never thought would happen. They didn't think 2020 would be a year for them to think about and fear death like they did. And so as we come to Luke chapter 7 this morning, there are two accounts of Jesus reversing the power of sickness and death. And so with this last year upon our hearts, we should be able to come to this text in, and learn from it in remarkable ways as we see Jesus' mighty power. And so I invite you to turn there to your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. As we face death today, and as they faced it in Jesus' day, the point for everyone and the thing that they need to grapple with and we need to grapple with is in the face of death, what do we do with Jesus? Do we truly trust and believe in him? And shouldn't that change how we face such a grim enemy as death? If you've been with us for some time, you know that we've been working through expositionally through the gospel of Luke. Luke gave this gospel in order to give an orderly account of the life of Jesus Christ to pass on to his friend, the renowned Theophilus. He wrote that Jesus was conceived in a special way in chapter 1. He was born and raised in chapter 2. He was then uh, prefaced by his relative, John the Baptist, in chapter 3. And then in chapters 4 and 5, he tells about Jesus starting his ministry. 
and how the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, began to oppose him. He began to go into all-out battle against these religious leaders, which surfaced or came to a climax in chapter 6, where there was a showdown between those leaders. And Jesus then focuses to then call 12 men to be his apostles, his close band of men who would be his representatives. The remainder of chapter 6 we saw was Jesus teaching his disciples and by implication the crowds who also followed him that they needed to decide, were they truly going to follow Jesus? What side were they really on? And he challenged them to consider on what foundation they were building their lives. And so as we arrive in chapter 7, Jesus gets to the heart of his ministry in Galilee. Galilee was the northern region of Israel, and it is here after a few months in the southern part in Judea that Jesus spends the bulk of the first part of his ministry in this greater Galilee region. He travels all around, presenting himself as the promised Messiah King and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he's telling them that in order for this kingdom to come, they must repent and believe and accept him as their Messiah. And last week, we finished chapter 6, where Jesus had began to finish teaching on who a disciple truly is. There's someone who trusts him, who calls him Lord and obeys what he says. That is the one whose life is built upon the rock. And so we saw in chapter 6 that Jesus taught authoritatively, spoke as God's representative. Now here in chapter 7, we're going to see Jesus act authoritatively. He taught authoritatively, and now we're going to see him back that up in his actions. He's going to perform miracles that will amaze people and will prove that he is the Son of God. And therefore, he will make it undeniably clear that he is not only a special prophet, but he is more than that. And so let's read our passage this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. So I invite you to follow along as I read Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do all this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, 
And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Thus ends the reading of God's word. In this passage this morning, we are going to see Jesus working his divine power by saving two people from death. And we're going to see in these two stories an example of both faith and example of fascination. One saves and one doesn't. And we need to look at these two examples so that we might know by which we live. Do we have faith in Jesus or simply fascination in him? That is the key question for us. First, let's look at the example of faith. The example of faith that we'll see in verses 1 through 10 in the account of the centurion. Here in this first vignette, Luke records that Jesus heals a centurion's servant or slave. And so as an example of faith, I want us to see in these verses four features of the centurion's faith that we can learn. The first is that his faith leads him to Jesus. The first part of his example is that his faith leads him to Jesus. We see this in verses 1 through 5. And we know that Jesus has been doing ministry around the Galilee region. He Now, verse 1, it says that after he finishes teaching from chapter 6, he enters Capernaum. Capernaum is his home base. This is his, his Galilee home base where he's traveling all around, but he comes back to Capernaum regularly. Well, there's no indication that he himself has a home or a permanent state of residence in Capernaum, but he stayed there often and most likely stayed with Peter, the apostle Peter, who had a house and a family there. Now, the centurion also is living there in Capernaum, and he hears that Jesus has arrived. He hears the murmurings throughout the town. He's home. He's home. The Messiah, he, he's returned. This Nazarene has come back. And at this point, he now has a servant who's home and is sick. The, the text says, verse 2, he's at the point of death. This is not just one who has a light cold. This is, this is a, a servant who is, the situation looks quite grim. Now, this centurion is one who was a Roman soldier he had authority over a century of soldiers, a, a hundred men. It was a prestigious position, which would have also brought some wealth. It would have uh, been paid uh, well for his services. 
Now, it's important to know that when these men served in the army, they weren't allowed to marry. And so they didn't have a family. And so those who lived with them were often their attendants, their servants, or their slaves. And so they begin to develop familial ties with those they lived with and were part of their household. Now, this is an example of how slavery existed here in the Roman world. And indeed, the history of humanity shows that slavery exists in just about everywhere and in every society ever since the fall of man. This is, in the Bible times here, is no different. And just like we find in other places, some treat the slaves well, others treat their slaves not so well. Here, uh, we see that the centurion treated his slave, his servant, well. The ESV here translates it as servant. It's the Greek word doulos, for which we find throughout the New Testament to mean bondservant or slave. Now, verse 2, look at it, says, the last phrase, it says that this servant was highly valued by Jesus, or by the centurion, rather. Highly valued. Now, this doesn't mean that this slave cost a lot to him. This is a word that means precious. It means highly regarded, highly valued. He cared deeply for this servant, which explains his actions throughout the rest of the, these verses, right? He cared so much for this man that he's willing to go to great lengths to reach out in order to see this man healed. And so he, his valued, his precious servant is sick. Again, potentially some, some familial bonds that were even built between him and this man. And so he's... He goes to get help. And he does it. Verse 3, he says, when he heard about Jesus, heard that Jesus was back in town, he sent to him elders of the Jews. This is truly a remarkable thing for a Roman centurion to send a delegation of Jewish authorities to go get this now Jewish Messiah. This interaction, this partnership, for even the centurion to ask these Jews to do this is one thing. For the, the, the elders of the Jews to agree to do that is something completely uh, different. And yet, we see that all working together here harmoniously. And as we, as we see, these, this centurion who seems to be stationed here in Capernaum, and these Jews that I believe were not necessarily the leaders of the synagogue, but were actually the leaders of the town, they were civic elders, they had a good relationship with this Roman centurion. They had a harmonious relationship. And again, remember, this is not the way it normally was. The Jews hated the Romans because the Romans were their oppressors. They were the ones who ruled over them, and their presence of Roman troops throughout the country was a regular reminder of that, that they were not free as a Jewish people, that they were being oppressed, that there was someone else in charge. And they resented that. But this centurion has learned to live well with the Jewish people in this place. So this was something special for the centurion to send this group of elders and for them to agree to do it. But even in this request that we see here in verse 3, for him to, to send these elders to Jesus, we begin to see a glimpse of the centurion's faith. Do you see how he doesn't turn anywhere else? When he needs help, where does he go? He goes directly to Jesus. He believes that Jesus is the one with the power and the ability to heal his 
slave. You see, his faith drives him to act. Now, I must mention here that Matthew, the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 8, records the details of this event a little bit differently. And some have used those differences in order to say, see, look, the Gospels don't line up with one another and there's inconsistencies and all the rest. But uh, I believe there's a way that they can harmonize and that they can be explained together. Matthew says that the centurion went himself to Jesus and spoke directly with Jesus. Here in Luke, Luke describes the centurion not leaving his house, but rather sending uh, messengers and going to speak on behalf of the centurion. Again, while this may look like a discrepancy and a contradiction, the reality is there's a simple explanation that can harmonize the two. And that is that in ancient times, they would see a messenger who goes out uh, from someone as possessing the same authority as the sender. So that the, the person who is sent goes out as an ambassador, similar to like an international ambassador would go today, that an international ambassador goes to another country and has the authority of the government of the country from which they came to represent that country in the other country. In the same way, even a simple situation as this, the centurion could send messengers and that those messengers would go out with the same authority as the centurion himself. So that they, could, they had a saying that they would say something to the effect that was speaking to the messenger is as speaking to the man himself. Speaking to the messenger as it is as speaking to the man himself. They recognize that if you talk to someone sent under the delegated authority of a sender, that you're essentially speaking to that person. And so Matthew takes that reality and condenses it and simply says that the centurion goes and speaks to Jesus, even though it was, Luke describes the greater detail, that it was through a, a proxy, through these messengers. Now in verses four through five, the Jewish elders make their case to Jesus for why he should change what he's doing for the day and go and follow them to the centurion's house. They are speaking on behalf of their sender, but they, they add more. They don't just relay a simple message. They put their hearts behind it. Look at it, verses 4 and 5. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Notice they didn't do this half-heartedly. Notice they, they lean into it, and they, they are pleading with Jesus, doing it earnestly, it says. I believe they spoke with passion. They spoke with urgency. There was a man who was dying but they didn't just plead with him to say, hey, come heal this man who's dying. It wasn't the, the urgency of the deathbed that was, that was prompting them as much here as the quality of the man that they're speaking on behalf of. The character of the centurion so affected these Jewish elders that they're pleading with Jesus. Please do this for this man because he is a special man. He is worthy for Jesus to act. And why do they think he's worthy? Why do they think Jesus, should, again, should change what he's doing to go and act on the centurion's behalf? Well, it says, because he loves our nation. Here is a 
conquering soldier who's there on behalf of Rome, and he doesn't despise all the people around, but truly they recognize that he loves them. He loves the nation. He has an affinity for the Jewish people and for the nation of Israel. You get the sense that once he retires, he might move and live in Israel. He, he loves this place. He loves these people. But on top of that, he, he backed up his love with action. It says that he built their synagogue. Now, we don't know how much that would have cost, but we have to imagine that it was substantial in order to pay for a building in their city. And so this clearly is not a normal Roman centurion. He loved these people. And so the Jewish elders make it clear that this centurion is a friend. He's not just another guy looking for a, a cheap answer, a, ch a quick fix. This is someone they deeply care about. And so verse 6 says, and Jesus went with them. So they, Jesus says, all right, I'll go with you. And so they turn and they begin to walk towards the centurion's house. But we then, so this, this, this verses uh, 1 through 5 and the beginning part of 6 here, we see the first feature of the centurion's faith, and that is that his faith leads him to Jesus. But the second feature that we see in verses 6 through 7 is that his faith prompted humility. His faith prompted or produced humility. And so it says, verse 6, he went with them, but when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. Interestingly, Jesus isn't even there yet. The centurion, we don't even know if he knows if Jesus is, is actually coming. We assume he does know, but he sends out another delegation on his behalf. This is a different group. Jesus is walking with the elders of the city, and all of a sudden, another group of friends are coming, bringing a more updated word from the centurion. And they come and reveal something more about the centurion's heart and something about his faith. So the centurion says to Jesus, through these friends, notice that they speak in the first person, again, equating that reality that these friends speak truly on behalf as if he's speaking to the centurion himself. They say, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. He says, therefore, I did not presume to come to you. N notice the contrast. Whereas before, the, the, the Jewish elders said that he is worthy. They use that specific term. He is worthy for you to come. Here, the friends say, on behalf of the centurion, the centurion says, I am not worthy. I am not worthy. He says, I'm not worthy of your time and attention for you to waste so much to come and veer off to my house and and, and frankly, to even come into my house. The centurion here, notice, calls him Lord. Kyrios is the Greek, uh, the common term for Lord in the New Testament. Now, some would like to see this as simply a term of respect. In other words, if he's saying sir or master to, or teacher to Jesus. But I believe taking this account as a whole, that this centurion has more than just respect for Jesus. There's faith in Jesus, seeing him as truly the Lord, the representative of God, truly God in the flesh. And so 
this Roman centurion is acknowledging this Jewish man as Lord. He expresses his humility. He recognizes that he is not worthy to even come under his roof. He says, Jesus, I don't deserve for you to even step foot in my house. Please, I, I, I would feel ashamed. I, I, I wouldn't feel right if you actually came and, and, and stepped into my house. Now, it's true he may be concerned with Jewish purification laws, saying, listen, Jesus, I know I got a Gentile house, and so you may not want to step in and be, be, become unclean. But I, don't, I, I think there's, there's more going on here than just issues of cleanliness. Well, this shows that there's issues between the Jews and the Gentiles uh, working together. I believe the centurion uh, does not see Jesus just as a Jew, another Jewish teacher. In other words, with this comment, he's not just addressing normal Jewish concerns. I believe he sees Jesus as truly divine. And that his statement here, that I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, is not a question of cleanliness, but of, as he says, of worthiness, of truly whether he is worthy or not. I think the centurion knows that Jesus is a holy man, that Jesus is perfect, and he sees his own sin in light of who Jesus is. I think this is akin to, to Peter's statement in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, where Peter falls on his, on his knees before Jesus and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He recognizes in the presence of Jesus that he is not worthy, that he falls short. You see, the word translated worthy here can mean good enough. And it has to do with measuring up to a standard. Measuring up to a standard. The centurion is saying, I don't measure up. So therefore, do not step foot into my house. He didn't meet the standard. In fact, he didn't even feel like he could go himself and be in Jesus' presence, which is why he says he sent this dele these delegations of people. And so here we have this man who was highly respected. He, have a, he had 100 troops under him. He had, he had wealth. He had status. He had authority. And yet he essentially is taking on the posture of a slave and saying, I am not worthy to even be in your presence. This is remarkable faith. And so we've seen that his faith leads him to Jesus. His faith prompts his humility. And now thirdly, we see his faith believes in Jesus' power. His faith believes in Jesus' power. The end of verse 7. He says, verse 7, Therefore I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Say the word and let my servant be healed. Notice that it's because he believes in his own unworthiness and he believes in Jesus' mighty power that he gives Jesus a command. I mean, the, the Greek word here is an imperative. It's, he actually commands Jesus to do something. And it's not often that you see someone give Jesus a command and have it come from a heart of faith. But that's what happens here. He tells Jesus to simply speak the word. He wants Jesus to simply speak powerful words instead of setting foot in his home. Because he truly believes that if Jesus were to speak those words, then it would truly bring about healing and rescue 
and salvation for his servant. He believes his slave would be healed if Jesus would simply say the word. And so notice that there's no question in this man's mind. He doesn't ask whether it's possible. Hey, Jesus, if you say it, will it work? Could you heal him if you do that? I'm not sure. Just, just kind of put it out there as an option. Maybe you could do that instead of coming. No, he has absolute faith in what Jesus is able to do. He says, Jesus, you don't even need to be present because I believe that you have the power of God and you are able to simply say the word. You're able to have creative power with your word just as God had creative power to bring the world into existence by his word. And notice he equates it to the idea of leadership. He, he compares his situation as a Roman centurion who gives commands and essentially says, Jesus, I know you can say what you need to say and it's going to happen. And so he compares it in verse 8 to this idea. He says, listen, I, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me and I give this commands and these things happen. And so essentially what he's saying is saying, Jesus, I know you can marshal all the forces in heaven and on earth to make anything happen. I believe you have that kind of power. I believe you have that kind of authority. And so please do that. And so this centurion reveals not only his humility, recognizing his own self-assessment, but he recognizes and confesses the power of Jesus. And his faith is 100% resting in what Jesus can do. But the fourth feature of this man's faith that we see in this passage is that his faith causes Jesus to marvel. His faith causes Jesus to marvel. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Folks, this is the only time that Jesus marvels in a positive way at someone's faith. Mark chapter 6, he marvels at unbelief, but here he marvels at faith. He's astounded by what he's just heard coming not from a, a devout Jewish person, but coming from a Gentile, a Roman soldier. Jesus is marveling. And it's so remarkable to Jesus that he, he kind of goes, hold on a minute. And he turns and faces the crowd that's been coming, that's been following him. And he uses this as a time to make a declaration. He says, I tell you, stating the emphasis, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This was a rebuke to that entire crowd. Listen, none of you are believing in the way that this centurion is believing. None of you are trusting in me like the centurion is trusting in me. I've been around you for days and for weeks, but I'm not hearing the same things out of you that I just heard from this centurion who didn't even feel worthy enough to come directly to me. They should, the crowd should have been walking in the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They should have been ready to place their faith in the great son of David who has arrived on the scene performing miracles of the kingdom showing that he is the promised one. 
They should have bowed in humble adoration and repentance. But Jesus is saying he's not seeing that kind of faith. Verse 10 concludes the story by showing the result of the miracle. But notice it doesn't actually tell the miracle itself. What Jesus said to heal the servant, Luke doesn't record. Matthew records it, Luke doesn't. But we get enough to know that he spoke it and that it happened, right? Verse 10, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found that servant well. We are assured of Jesus' miraculous ability. He was truly able to do what the centurion thought he could do. And so it is with Jesus' powerful words, a man who was on the brink of death is pulled back. The funeral that they may have been planning was canceled because this man was 100% well again. So what do we need to take away from this story? What is about the example of this man's faith that we need to learn? Well, we need to see that saving faith is always directed towards Jesus, right? Jesus exclusively. And we need to ask ourselves, are we trusting in Jesus exclusively like the centurion was? Or do we go with doubt in our hearts thinking, well, we'll give him a shot. And several step into religion and Christianity trying to test out Jesus, trying to test things out. But, but listen, Jesus calls for absolute faith, that we trust in him completely, depending upon him exclusively. We're not testing a bunch of other things. We're testing, we, we believe in Jesus can, alone can save, can alone can work. But we also need to see that saving faith produces humility in us. A sign of true faith in your life is that you happily confess your unworthiness. This is what we learn from the centurion, do we not? He readily, happily confessed, even put it on the mouth of somebody else to say, Go tell Jesus that I'm not worthy. And yet, sometimes we have a hard time saying those things. Our pride, our flesh wants us to think that we're someone important, think that we have done good things, to think that we are worthy in some way. Oh, maybe not to receive the most adulation, but we can at least receive a little bit. But the centurion says, I am not worthy. In light of God's holiness, we must recognize that we are nothing, that we are not worthy, we are not good enough, we do not measure up, and the only thing that we bring to the table of the gospel is need. A great big negative in our righteousness bank account. We don't just need to be brought to zero, we need a positive account in our bank account, which means there's a lot of ground to be covered. And so we need our sins forgiven to be brought us to zero, and we need righteousness to enter into heaven. And all of that comes through Jesus. We can't contribute any of it on our own. We can't try hard enough. The Bible says that any sort of good things we try to do only makes the pit deeper. We try to make ourselves more righteous. We try to show ourselves to be a good person, and we're just in that hole shoveling dirt out and putting us further and further and further away from where we need to be. Friends, that's where we're at the bottom of the hole. And the good news that comes to us through Jesus is he says, look up. Don't stop striving in your own flesh to save yourself, but ask for God to save you. He saves sinners. That is the good news. That is what we hope in. That we simply by faith in Jesus Christ that we are able to be saved. And so we go to Jesus, believing 
that he is able to save us. Friends, this is the faith that Jesus commends, that he gives two thumbs up to, that he highlights is an absolute trust in who he is and a recognition of our complete unworthiness in light of who he is. It's a faith that Jesus wants each one of us to, to express today. And so we need to follow the centurion and go to Jesus. Well, this first account gives us an example of faith. The next account will give us an example of fascination, as I'm calling it. Fascination. The first funeral never took place because the slave was healed. In the second story, the funeral is interrupted. Let's look at this example of fascination in verses 11 through 17. Verse 11 changes the scene. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. He went to a town called Nain. We don't know how soon this was, but it was, Luke indicates, sometime after the healing of the centurion's servant. And it says that he came to a town called Nain. And uh, as my family will tell you, I am a map guy, so I can't help but show you a map, okay? Just put the picture in your brain, and you can connect this little segment of Israel with maybe a map in the back of your Bible or, or whatnot. Uh, <clears throat> but you can see that uh, the Sea of Galilee is that uh, blue thing that now has, I put the red arrow in, but the red arrow in the middle of the Sea of Galilee is pointing to Capernaum. That's where the healing of the centurion's servant took place. Down at the bottom of the screen is Nain, and uh, that is where this next event takes place. Capernaum is about 25 miles north of Nain. So for Jesus to travel from Capernaum down to Nain is about a day's journey. Again, we don't know if it was the next day or if it, was, it could have easily been uh, next week or so. That town of Nain uh, is just to the southwest of Nazareth. You can see just up to the left on the map there in the next kind of hilly region is the town of Nazareth. And you can see that a valley spans between the two. This Nain is on the side of a little hill. You can kind of notice by the color change, right? There's the green, that's the valley, and then the little brown is a little hill, a hilly region. That's called the Hill of Moray or the Mount of Moray. And uh, we're going to come back to talk about geography later on, so that's why I want you to, to recognize this. But you can see... Uh, that it's up there in this Galilee region. Now, biblically, nothing else happens at the town of Nain particularly uh, other than this event in Luke 7. But there were other biblical events that took place at that hill of Moray. And that's what we're gonna we'll talk about a little bit later. So Luke tells us that Jesus came to this little town of Nain with a great crowd. He's got an entourage. His disciples and a great crowd went him, with him. This is in the midst of his Galilean ministry. There's great popularity. Word is spreading. People want to see this miracle worker. And so he comes, uh, whether he was going to come actually to the town of Nain or just pass by it, we're not entirely sure. It seems that he is going to it, or at least passing by near it. And it says, verse 12, that another crowd is coming to meet them. So you kind of get this picture of Jesus 
heading off at the front of this crowd and all these hundreds of people coming behind him. And then you get this crowd coming out of the gate of Nain and lots of people coming out of there and they're kind of headed towards one another. This crowd coming out of Nain, though, is a funeral procession for a young man. Because the Jews did not embalm their dead, funerals usually took place the same day as the, day, as the death. And so this was a very recent passing of this young man. Of course, any funeral is grievous, but this one, as Luke narrates for us, was especially so. This man was young. He was in the prime of life when his, his life was cut short. But more tragically, he was the only son of his widowed mother. Therefore, his mom had already lost her spouse and then was depending upon her son, and now she has lost her only immediate family member. But more than just losing a companion, a son, a relative, she has lost her only means of support. You see, in ancient times, there were very few jobs that women could get that would employ them and enable them to make enough to live off of. And so a, a widow who loses sons and husband, uh, she is now destitute. She's dependent upon charity uh, and will scrape along in existence. The life after this will be one of suffering and destitution. And so this woman is a woman who's experienced deep pain. And she's anticipating much pain in the days ahead. She's gone through the pain of losing a spouse, and now she has lost her only son. Now, the funeral procession, in accordance with Jewish custom, would have been led by the women, and particularly this bereaved woman. So she is leading the pack. And this makes sense. We have Jesus leading his group of followers, and you get this funeral procession and the woman leading out front. So that verse 13, it says, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Jesus meets this woman. He interacts with her before he gets even to the body of her son. This text, this verse 13, is the first time that Luke calls Jesus the Lord. He'll start doing this now throughout his Gospels. Uh, Jesus has been called Lord on other occasions, but in terms of a narrator saying the Lord did this or that, this is the first time that he says that. And he says the Lord saw her, saw this woman, and had compassion on her. Literally, his insides moved deeply for this woman. It's a, it's a word, the com word for compassion deals with the movement of the bowels internally, which for us, we don't speak in terms of deep emotion in terms of the bowels, but that's the way that the ancients talked about it, that deep down in us, there's deep movement for and reaching out towards. His heart went out to her in her grief and her pain. And friends, we cannot pass this verse without recognizing the love that Jesus has and the heart that he has for those who are in pain and in grief. Notice that Jesus was not on some great messianic mission, that he's going here and there, making, uh, doing miracles and doing things and, and, and basking in the glow of the crowds, so much so that he, he cannot focus on the pain of a single woman. 
in Israel. Jesus is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the Bible says, and he does not look upon our suffering with indifference. He cares about each and every individual pain and hurt that we bear. He knows the aches of your hearts, and he has compassion upon you this morning. See the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers in this text. He loves you and has mercy upon you in your mercy and in your grief and in your pain. As we know, Jesus understands pain. He will, future to this account, history to us, he has gone through the pain and the suffering of the cross, of the abandonment. But see, Jesus is not just a kind-hearted person who goes, oh, I'm sorry for you, and leave it there. Jesus acts. His compassion moves him to do something. He's a man of tender love and powerful action. He's able to act out of his love to bring about good, and that's what he does for the widow here. He goes to her and he says, do not weep, which for anybody else to say would be absolutely cruel. Listen, woman, stop crying. But it's not cruel for Jesus because he's about to change her situation. After speaking to her, he moves past her toward the body of her son. Verse 14, then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. The ESV has in here uh, the bier, and in the NASB translates it as a coffin. A bier is simply a a platform that would have been carried by people with the body laid on top it would have been an open uh, uh, mat or a stretcher. And I think uh, beer is a better translation because uh, this doesn't seem that the Jews used coffins, and so it probably was this open stretcher that would have been covered. The body would have been covered, but it would have been um, open bearers is being carried to the, to the burial site. And it says, verse 14, that he came up and he touched that stretcher. Numbers 19 verse 11 says that if you touch an, a dead body that you instantly become unclean. You're ceremonially unclean. But like Jesus touching the leprous person in chapter 5, so here he does not receive contamination from the unclean body, but instead he gives cleanness. He gives life. It's emanating from him. So Jesus cannot be defiled by these things. He has the power over them to make them clean. And so as he walks up to this stretcher and he puts his hand upon it, everybody stops. The bearers who are carrying this stop, it says. They come to a halt. Everyone recognizes something unique is happening. If they were surprised by Jesus walking up and touching the dead body, they would have been absolutely shocked to see what he's going to do next. That he started speaking to the dead body. That is truly remarkable. It says, verse 14, young man, I say to you, arise. I mean, notice the directness and the authority by which he commands this young man. He tells him to get up, to arise. Of course, any other person speaking to a dead man, it's ludicrous. And you put him, put him away for it, right? But not for Jesus. 
He is speaking with authoritative, and as we've already seen, powerful words. His words do something. In response to Jesus' words, Scripture records a most amazing statement. Look in verse 15. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. I mean, he doesn't, Luke doesn't even record the young man sat up or the son sat up. He calls him the dead man. The dead man sat up. Those two things don't go together. A dead person and sitting up, unless you're in some horror movie or whatever. But here is reality. Jesus speaks, and it says the dead man sat up, and for proof that he's alive, he began to speak. He begins to talk. This, this instance, the, the life of the man was returned to him. His soul recalled from heaven, rejoined with his body, and his life was restored. But notice here we also see the tenderness of the Lord still. Look what happens after he does this. It says, and he, or Jesus, gave him to his mother. And Jesus is there standing at the stretcher, and he speaks to the man. The man sits up and begins to talk. And I picture Jesus reaching up and, and grabbing the man, young man's hand and helping him down and then leading him over and giving him to his mother. The tenderness of, of, of essentially saying, Mother, here's your son. I've given him back to you. He didn't just say, yep, see, he's alive, moving on. No, he cares about restoring that relationship. He's caring about this widow and, and seeing that happening to him. I mean, can you imagine the joy of the woman at that moment? The tears of joy she would have shed? But, again, we're looking at this because this story is an example of not faith, but of fascination. And let's see why in verse 16. After Jesus does all of this, it says, verse 16, fear sees them all and they glorify God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. They are shocked, they're amazed, there's fear, there's marveling, there's amazement, and they say two things. They say, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Now, these people were not only aware of what Jesus was doing, but they're aware of their geography and their history. Remember I said geography is going to come back into it? In the history of Israel, two prophets were known for their miracle working, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha are the two prophets in Israel's history that are known for all the miracles that they did. And both of these men, get this, both of these men were used by God to bring an only son back to life. Bring an only son back to life. Elijah, he raised the only son of the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17. And Elisha raised, uh, brought back an only son to life in 2 Kings 4. And it's particularly this Elisha account that is on people's minds in this day because in Elisha's story, the woman, uh, the woman who uh, he gives the son back to is from the town of Shunem, of Shunem, okay? And Shunem is only two miles away from Nain. In fact, we can show that picture if you can read that. You can see the hill of Moreh is that mound in the middle on the left is Nain, on that side of the hill. On the right side of the hill, just on the other side, is Shunem. 
these people that lived around this hill of Moray and have heard generations and generations of the stories of God in their land knew that just over the hill that God used a prophet to raise an only son back to life. And here, now they are in Nain, and they just watched it with their own eyes, an only son come back to life. And so they call out, a great prophet has arisen among us. They see a connection with what has gone on in Israel's history right over the hill. And they believe God has visited his people. But the problem is they should have recognized something greater was there. It's not just a prophet who is there. Elijah and Elisha prayed for these boys to come back to life. Jesus spoke for them to come back. He spoke directly to this dead man. And therefore, Jesus is greater than a prophet. Yes, he is a prophet, but he is the divine son of God. Even the demons earlier in the book of Luke knew that Jesus was the Christ, the son of God, but these people were not willing to confess that. They should have, in that moment, bowed down before him in repentance and faith. They should have been humbled at the majesty of their king. They should have exhibited the faith that the centurion had, but they didn't. They're just fascinated. They're whipped up into a frenzy in the excitement of the miracle, and they went and spread the news far and wide. That's what verse 17 tells us. They begin to, they're so fascinated, they begin to tell people about it. But even though they seem to be glorifying God and recognizing something that's there, they're not going far enough. They're not going far enough and responding with faith. And friends, the same danger that those people faced in that day is a danger that you and I can face today, which is we can be in and around a lot of good things, around Jesus things, and yet simply only be fascinated by it and not truly commit and believe and give ourselves completely to Jesus. And so we need to see these two accounts, an example of faith, an example of fascination, and we need to examine our own hearts and lives and see where do I stand? Do I truly believe in Jesus wholeheartedly? Do I confess my unworthiness before him? Or am I simply hanging around Jesus' things? Am I simply going to church and doing religious things and going to small group and whatever else might be there and I'm simply fascinated by these things? I'm acquainted with them, but I don't know them. I don't know Christ truly. He isn't my savior. I haven't trusted in him personally. Each one of us have to trust in Jesus on our own. And so, to all of us, Jesus and the gift that he offers is available to us if we would but repent and believe and trust in him as God's true representative, as the divine son of God. Even for those of us who truly believe and have been in the church for years, our faith can wane, can it not? And we can tend to simply fade into the fascination phase and we're just hanging around. We need to reaffirm this morning that our faith is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen? May God give us the humility required to confess our unworthiness and confess the worthiness of Christ of our allegiance. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh Jesus, we cry out to you and we do confess our unworthiness this morning. We have no goodness by which we can come before you and be proud of. Anything that has shown in our lives that is good or is righteous is simply because of your grace. You have done it all. 
Well, Father, forgive us for our pride of taking any sort of credit. And I pray, Lord, if there are those who are listening to me this morning that are trusting in their own works, trusting in their own righteousness, that it will get, be enough. Oh, Father, may you break them of such delusions. May you help them to see that on that final day, when they stand before this Jesus, that the only saving words be words of faith and trust in his righteousness, not in our own. Oh, Father, would you, Spirit, work in each one of us to see the truth and to confess it for ourselves today. And we'll give you the glory and praise. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. May God bless you, brothers and sisters, and God be with you this week as we live for him. You're dismissed.